If you are here today, you obviously made a decision to come to Chatham Christian Church. So how did you make that decision? Well, some who are here today made that decision nearly 50 years ago when a group of Christians who lived in Chatham but had been worshiping at at Christian churches in Springfield and Auburn decided that there should be a Christian church in this community. Others have come over the years because this is a church that identifies with the Restoration Movement, a movement that began in the 1800s when Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian ministers sought unity on the American frontier and decided to drop their denominational distinctives and simply be Christians, not the only Christians, but Christians only. Many who are here came from a variety of religious backgrounds or no religious background and are still here because they found something here that met their spiritual needs or simply something they liked. They liked the youth group or the music or the preaching or the welcome they found when they came. And some are here because they are convinced we teach the truth. And they're willing to put up with things they may not really like because they see the need for a church that is true to Christ and his word. Well, Obviously, there are lots of choices when it comes to churches and many reasons for deciding which church to join, least of which is the name on the building. You know, there was a day when you pretty much knew what a church believed by the name of the church. If you went to a Christian church or a Baptist church or a Methodist church, you knew what to expect. Those days are pretty much gone. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I grew up in a Christian church. And I can remember thinking that the Christian church was the only true church. Now I read Touchstone, a journal of mere Christianity. And to give you an idea of how far I've come since my strictly indoctrinated youth, let me read to you a statement found inside the cover of every Touchstone. Touchstone is a Christian journal, conservative in doctrine and eclectic in content, with editors and readers from each of the three great divisions of Christendom, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox. It provides a place where Christians of various backgrounds can speak on the basis of shared belief in the fundamental doctrines of the faith as revealed in Holy Scripture and summarized in the ancient creeds of the church. To the confusion of voices in the world on matters of order in religious, social, and cultural life, it speaks with a unified voice of that which manifests in creation and divine revelation flows from the life of God himself. An interesting statement, to say the least. Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox. You know, I was taught not to even think of myself as a Protestant. 
but simply as a Christian. And there is some truth in that. Denominational labels and creedal statements can be very divisive in the kingdom of God. But to assume only those who have rejected such constitute the true church is far more divisive. So which church is the true church? Is there a particular denomination or movement that can legitimately lay claim to being the true church? I don't think so. So is there even such a thing as a true church? I believe there is. It's the ecclesia of God, the called out ones who represent Christ on earth. It's made up of individual believers who by faith have accepted Christ's offer of salvation and who have made him the Lord of their life. That means the true church exists within the apparent church and worships and serves Christ within a variety of traditions. That also means... Being a part of a particular religious group does not guarantee that you are a part of the true church. It's not a matter of joining the right church or even observing the right religious ordinances. You know, the Apostle Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to work with the Ephesian church which really wasn't one big church, but consisted of many small congregations located throughout Ephesus that met in public places and private homes. Paul had spent three years there establishing the church, and the collective church in Ephesus would eventually become the most influential church in the world. But not all who associated with the believers in Ephesus were really members of the true church. Within its midst were insincere members, imposters, false teachers, and downright evil men. Some had even turned their back on the faith and on the Apostle Paul. So the church in Ephesus had its problems. It was far from perfect, and Paul was very concerned about it. But he was not worried that the true church in Ephesus was in danger of falling apart. He makes that very clear in the 19th verse of 2 Timothy 2. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Bun Park Christian Church no longer exists. Marilyn grew up there, and I was the youth minister there for four years. The building on South 13th is still there, but Bun Park Christian Church is no more. The true church that worshiped there, however, still exists. And I'm still a part of it. Because the true church continues to stand. And it always 
always will. When Paul said the firm foundation of God stands, what foundation was he talking about? The writer of Hebrews speaks of foundational doctrines. Isaiah prophesied that many would stumble over the foundational stone that God would lay in Zion, referring to the Messiah. And Paul told us in Ephesians that God's household was built on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the foundational cornerstone. So is the firm foundation the truth or person upon which something was founded? Or is it that which was founded? I think it can be both. A foundation is obviously that upon which something is built, but can also refer to that which was founded, like the Rockefeller Foundation. And I think the context makes it clear that Paul is talking about the church here. And I think that the firm foundation he's talking about is both that upon which the church was founded and the church itself, which was founded. And I believe that harmonizes with Jesus' words to Peter after he answered the question, who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, 16 through 18, we read, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. The fact that Jesus is the Christ is the rock upon which the church is built. And the church that was established upon that rock will never be destroyed. You know, cults come and go. Denominations merge and disappear. Movements fade into oblivion. Congregations close their doors. But the church of Christ, the true church, remains. And it always will. Even the gates of Hades, the grave, death itself, cannot overpower it. So obviously, that's the church we want to be a part of. And we can if our faith is built on the person of Christ. Now that means our faith must never be built on some charismatic leader or one particular body of believers or a feeling that we get in a certain place. Leaders will disappoint us. Bodies evolve and change and places can lose their emotional ties. The only thing that will stand forever, that will not change, is Jesus Christ and that which is founded upon him. If our faith is built on him and him alone, it will be solidly planted on the firm foundation that will never crumble beneath our feet. And we can therefore know that we are a part of the true church, the one that will remain standing even in the face of death and the grave.
Obviously, that gives us great personal assurance. But what about others? How can we tell if they are a part of the true church? Or can we? Well, Paul continues in verse 19 by saying, The Lord knows those who are his. Now, there's a very important implication in that statement. It's not our place to say who is and who is not a part of the true church because we don't know. And we can't know because the only heart that we know is our own. So we don't know who belongs to the Lord and his church and who doesn't. But he does. The Lord knows those who are his. Now, we can be deceived because we can only look on the externals. That means some people who look like good church members are not. And the Lord knows it because he can look into the heart. And he knows what's done in secret. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Doing things in the name of the Lord, even great things, does not guarantee that someone is known by Christ. So obviously, identifying yourself with the church doesn't guarantee that you are a part of the true church. In fact, some who identify with the church are just tares. They're weeds among the wheat. In Matthew 13, a couple passages we read, he presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? But he said to them, An enemy has done that. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. 
He who has ears, let him hear. You know, that certainly explains problems that arise in the church. They're caused by terrors, holy terrors. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> now, that's, that's not to say everyone involved in a problem or upset with the church is a terror. But tares have a way of infiltrating the wheat, of getting entangled with it. That's why we can't just pull out the tares. And that's why we must expect problems in the church. But problems, even really big ones, don't spell doom for the church, not the true church. They only indicate the presence of tares. Our concern, however, is not trying to identify the terrors. Our concern is simply not being one. And we avoid being terrors in the kingdom by making certain that we are holy because the true church is holy. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Those who would wear the name of the Lord should share the character of the Lord. And they will, unless they are using the Lord's name in vain. Paul says those who wear the name of Christ must abstain from wickedness. They must apostatize from it. That's the word he actually uses. They must turn away from wickedness. Wickedness, however, may not be the best translation here. Besides, few would think of themselves as wicked anyway. The word Paul uses simply means not right or unrighteous. Those who would be a part of the true church must turn away from everything that's not right. They must be holy to the Lord. Paul uses the image of vessels in a large house to drive this point home. In verses 20 and 21 of 2 Timothy 2, he says, Now in a large house... There are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. To be sanctified is to be holy. In a large house, there are all kinds of vessels, utensils. Some are made of gold or silver and others of wood or clay. Some are put to honorable uses and others to dishonorable uses. Now, Paul 
used a similar analogy when speaking about the varieties of gifts in the church, pointing out how even less honorable parts of the body are given more abundant honor in the service of Christ. He also made it clear that a pot has no right to question the potter as to why he was made for utilitarian purposes. But the point he's making here is neither of those. He begins here by simply pointing out that some vessels within the house will receive honor and others will be dishonored. Some will be lifted up and held in high esteem, treasured forever, while others will be put to dishonorable uses and eventually discarded. The point he goes on to make is that all vessels in the house of God can be made into vessels of honor. All can be given the worth of gold or silver. But it requires that a man cleanse himself from the things that Paul has just mentioned. And what are these things? They are the things that are not right. Things that are unrighteous. Things that are wicked. Now, we do have to be careful here. When he says a man must cleanse himself, he's not suggesting that a man can become clean before God by his own doing. We don't have within us that which is necessary to make ourselves clean before God. Our own righteous acts amount to nothing more than filthy rags in the sight of a perfect God. But God has given to us that which can make us clean. He has provided the means for cleansing ourselves from wickedness. And it's the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial death of the Son of God, that makes possible our cleansing. We must, however, apply that cleansing power to our lives. We have to accept his offer to cleanse us. And then we have to keep ourselves clean through his provision. We trust that he will continue to forgive us when we fail. But we also abstain from wickedness. We abstain from unrighteousness. And we can do so through the power he gives No, he didn't die just to save us from the consequences of sin. He died to save us from sin and its power over us. He died to make it possible for us to live lives free from unrighteousness. And if we will do that, we will be sanctified, made holy, set apart as honorable vessels in the house of God, vessels that have been prepared for every good work. And that indicates that sanctified vessels, honorable vessels, vessels of gold and silver are put to work in the house of God. They aren't set on a shelf or locked away in a sacred curio cabinet. They're made useful to the master of the house. In fact, that's an excellent definition of sanctification, made useful to the master. And that's the purpose 
for the church, the true church. Members of the true church are people who have been prepared for every good work. They've been changed into holy, honorable vessels that God can pour himself into and work through to accomplish his purposes in heaven and on earth. That means being a member of the true church requires more than joining the right church. It requires more than attendance in religious services. It requires more than involvement in all the activities of a church. It requires a desire to be used by God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. That is what it means to belong to the true church. The good news is that if that's your desire, God can make you into a vessel fit for his purposes. He can take that which is made of clay and make it into something that is gold in his sight. He knows your heart, and he can cleanse you if you will let him do so. And he can do so today. I invite you to come. If you want to be a part of the true church, a member made clean before God and useful to the master of the house.